And now, it's time for the Dad Bod Rap Pod with your hosts, Damone Carter, David Ma, and Nate LeBlanc. Dad Bod Rap Pod, episode 143. Three bad brothers you know so well are back in the fold. My name is Damone Carter, a.k.a. Dem One. I am joined on this very respectable podcast by Mr. Nate LeBlanc. How's it going? Uh, good. I can't hear the number 143 without thinking of I love you in pager code. <laughs> <laughs> love you too, bro. I know, when, I know. When I think of lovers, I immediately think of Mr. David Ma, uh, young Valentino. How's it going, man? Yo, it's going well. And I, too, think of you when I think of lovers. So, <laughs> so thank you for that, Damone. Um, yo, it's, it's, it's good to be back with you guys. It's been yeah. a minute. Um, I mean, um, for our listeners, I mean, we, we haven't all been on the same episode for a minute. So it's good to get the uh, triangle offense going here. Absolutely, man. And we're glad to have you back, bro. Um, Nate and I have been trying to argue doubly in your <laughs> in your absence, but it's not the same when you're rolling your eyes at both of us. <laughs> well, uh, just I, I well, can win just... any argument by just saying, I think Dave would say, <laughs> and then then you're outnumbered. Well, for the okay. record, I think I I like the Buster Rhymes album a little bit more than Nate, but way, way okay. less than Damone. <laughs> And so the opinions line up as they usually do. Uh, we're, we're happy to, to have the, the crew back together. Happy to bring this podcast to y'all. Happy to be living in a non-fascist state, apparently. Um, yes. Yeah. We, we dodged a bullet there, didn't we? Yes. What, what, what's that Tony Braxton song, Breathe Again? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, uh, that on loop. Yeah. Collective, collective exhale. Uh, it's been a wild week. By the time you're hearing this, uh, Donald Trump will be into his second week of denying he lost the, the election. Uh, but uh, we survived it. Last week was tense and, and weird and, and all the things. Uh, Nate, you went to uh, an undisclosed bunker. It was like you and Dick Cheney and like wild turkeys. How's that? <laughs> It's actually funny that you mentioned wild turkeys. There literally were wild turkeys walking around the property. We saw chipmunks, wild turkeys, a, a whole array of birds. Um, no Dick Cheney, thank God. Um, no. I did not get shot in the face or have to discuss uh, how he should be uh, in The Hague uh, serving out a term for war crimes. So war crimes. yeah, my wife yeah. and I decided to take the week off from work, get out of town. We have been spending way too much time in our apartment. And we, um, yeah, we got like a cabin Airbnb situation. We felt confident about the cleanliness and sanitation level of it. It was, it was really beautiful and I really needed it. And we just like took walks and I barely checked my phone. Um, I, we, we peaked at the election results on Tuesday night. Big mistake. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> woke up to that I, I don't think we'll ever well maybe ele every election will be like this nowadays and they just won't call them on tuesday nights anymore that bizarre middle space of not knowing and watching yeah. cable news and hearing about the different counties and the big collections of votes that would come in and i'm just happy that on saturday we got the result that we wanted and um i was polling 
Dave about this. Polling is a political term, as you know, um, and I'll extend it to you, Damone. Were you, did you feel relieved or happy or how would you characterize your emotions on 8.30 on Saturday morning when the news came in? When the news came out? Um, I think uh, similar to Dave's take on, on the uh, Buster Rhymes album, um, I'm not elated, uh, you know, we can get into it later, but there's, Biden and Harris isn't uh, the, the dream ticket for me, but um, definitely relieved, man. I mean, all the, the weird lefty arguing aside, uh, Donald Trump is like really, really bad. Like really, <laughs> really. I know that's, that's a hardcore analysis. <laughs> it, it almost seemed like you were doing a Trump. You're like, his badness is huge. I know. So bad. Everyone knows. <laughs> He uses all the worst words. <laughs> the worst. I'm literally the worst. Um, that it was just it was the the prospect of of what could have come in a second Trump term right. was right. so horrifying. I had a friend who was like, um, you know, trying to calm me down because I, I I promised I would be cool on Tuesday night and then I kind of lost it uh, <laughs> later at night. And he and he. He was calming me down. He's like, you know, there's going to be a lot of mail in. Just, just write it out. And I'm like, yeah, I, I'm turning into that guy. And he's like, well, the future of everything is writing on this. So I get it. You know what I mean? And that's, <laughs> no biggie. That's kind of how it felt. It's like the future of everything was writing on it. And it, and it turned out uh, in, in the best way that it could. Uh, but I'm stopping short of like, you know, I'm not getting a velvet Kamala Harris painting for the kids. Like, <laughs> There's there's a lot of things are going to happen in the next uh, couple of years, and there's a lot of work to be done. But definitely relief, definitely like a legit exhale. Dave, you and I were talking about this, and um, what instead of me describing it, can you tell the people how you felt? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So uh, you messaged me how you know how I was feeling, and I basically responded. I was ten thousand percent relieved. Um, you know, I, you should take a second to sort of enjoy this, but I don't even felt like that second emerged. It still hasn't come because we're, you know, we're, we're doing, we're stuck in all this entanglement because of fucking Trump, you know, and, you know, uh, not to be, not to be too, um, not to be too uh, macabre, but I mean, the world's still on fire. Nothing's changed. The, the, the COVID numbers are worse than ever. Thanks. Yeah. You know, so things like that. And, you know, certainly I think uh, to your point earlier, we got to start looking into election reform. We have four years to fucking do it. Let's do it. I mean, this is ridiculous. Um, so yeah, I mean, not not to be a wet blanket, but I'm st I'm still on pins and needles a little well, bit. It actually helps me set up my next point. So I, I appreciate how down you guys are about this. And there was a, there was a <laughs> moment on Saturday where I was like, "Am I incapable of happiness? Like, right. I should be happy about this. Like, we waited for this for so long. Like, right. I basically had to like." kick myself in the ass kind of and like we my my mom had given us some champagne for my birthday but it felt ridiculous to drink it not knowing the results i was like okay. let's pop this bottle like yeah, if yeah. not now when totally yeah. we don't really drink so we drank about three quarters of the bottle of champagne while we made dinner and kind of cheers and like yeah. you know my wife did what i thought was a pretty cheesy instagram post of us cheersing in front of the speeches on the on the TV I and I, I felt I weird about it. it. And, uh, you know, I, I was like, it, it's okay to be happy about this, but that's not my feeling. 
I, I don't know how right. else to describe it. And I don't know if it's something that's wrong with me or I'm just like too <gasps> wrapped up in like my doom and gloom scenarios. No. But I'm, I'm like, fuck, man, everyone else is dancing in the streets like the Ewoks at the end of Return of the Jedi. Like, I'm like oh, cool. Is that Yoda's you know ghost? I mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I think, uh, you know, I'm not sure who I saw commenting about this, but you, you know, you're, you're, you're entitled to joy even amidst um, really shitty times and um, being down and feeling horrible about things as trust me, as someone who works in social service, um, there's always going to be ample things to feel shitty about, but that you can have moments of joy in between it. Sure. I think it's just like dancing in the streets about, this election is not have just I'm, I'm not quite there because I feel like um, the the Democratic Party in and of itself even in winning um, there's a lot of bullshit going on totally. with the Democratic Party totally. um, so it's, it's hard for me to, to kind of have that uh, unbridled joy and elation but at the same time um, there's going to be like a covert response plan. In, like, totally, totally. Regular government shit is going right. to start happening again. And I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic um, about, about that. And also, you know, people dunking on Trump has been pretty, pretty <laughs> fucking funny. Uh, four seasons total landscaping. That Perfect. was that might that was probably the one moment of joy, to be honest. I mean, that was, you know, after the after the last four years, I think our pain, pain tolerance has risen so much. It's like, I don't even know how to fucking feel. You know what I mean? But that uh, that landscaping uh, thing was hilarious. <laughs> I just I just can't believe how incompetent they are and how far they got with their grift, given right. how stupid they are. Totally. It's just, it's just totally. incredible. I saw a tweet this morning that like really put this into focus it was right when biden had released his the list of his covid response and it's all like internationally known experts and doctors mm -hmm. and like oh. the, someone was like the one thing i noticed about biden's list is it didn't have his daughter or son-in-law on it <laughs> and it's like so it's, it's just amazing how far things had fallen and how normal the kleptocracy of the trump right. Uh, presidency mm -hmm. had gotten to seem and I mm -hmm. I just feel like we've been ground down mm -hmm. a okay. bit and I guess I think that's what happens under fascism or totalitarian right. or oligarchies or whatever you want to say is like the the crushing stupidity just starts to feel normal after a while and I think I've been like kind of numb since mm -hmm. the day after the last election I was I was texting with friends that I um met up with to drown sorrows that after the last election on election day and it was like remember we were in the we were in a dark bar in the daytime getting hammered mm -hmm. the day after the election i basically cried on election night drank all day the next day and then kind of got back to my normal life and i would say i was fairly depressed oh, um, for a lot of that time and right. you know we we had some wins like we started a rad podcast and like you know I'll, my career is going well and like i'm happy in my marriage and my life if you want to use that term but it's like everything also sucked right you know what i mean so i guess right. i just tell if you guys would share a little bit like how how do you feel now and like does this meet expectations or like 
do you feel normal yet? I guess is what I want to know. <laughs> Definitely not. I'm not even sure what normal would be like, you know, but to, to your guys's point earlier, I mean, it's nice to have a regular statesman, you know, at the podium, you know what I mean? Like it, it, the, his Trump's terrible, terrible behavior was just so normalized. It's like, Oh, what, what's he going to say now? Or what's so-and-so going to say, but it's nice to see, I mean, and, and to your point, Damone, uh, there's a lot of work to be done with Biden and Harris, 100%. But it's just nice to see a calm demeanor in front of the podium, you know, and to your point earlier with like the list of doctors, oh, internationally renowned geniuses, who would have thought, yeah. you know, like, right. <laughs> thank, thank you for reverting back to just, uh, you know, a, a, a sense of intelligence, you know? Trying, I mean, I, I, I definitely, you know, my day job work, kind of dovetails with, with a lot of this stuff. And so, um, unfortunately, or fortunately, I've been forced to think about this election for the last six months, really. But um, I, if, if there's like silver linings or things that I'm, I'm excited about, um, it's the power of people um, organizing in Georgia that flipped a state that mm -hmm. the DNC should be sending everyone, you know, uh, gift baskets down there that did that amazing work right uh, Stacy Abram, Abrams included and um, just the power of organizing I think folks and that I work with are really we're, we're reveling in that moment if there's like the a, a happiness there it's the the power of organizing the fact that there are more Americans who ain't on that bullshit than are but there's a lot of Americans that are on that bullshit so right. Half the country. I, I think I'm half and half. I think I'm half and half. There's, there's <laughs> definitely positive things to take out of it and I'm, that I'm excited about. But, you know, I also live in a country where 71-ish million people right. um, don't think I deserve human rights. So, right. you know, we, we, yeah. we persevere, we push on. But, uh, yeah, happy is a – I'm like, oh, I think this deserves an I. Oh. Right. Right, cool. right. Definitely not dancing in the streets atmosphere for me yet. But, but not not are, even near. But if you are, I'm also that person that's like, if you are, that's revel in it. You know, sure, I haven't sure. been taking much care not to, uh, you know, rain on, on the joy of others. If, if Kamala Harris ascendancy is exciting for you, enjoy it. I will be back in a couple months <laughs> to talk when we start talking about policy and such. But for yeah, sure. I, yeah, I think it's great. Speaking of which, did any of you, either of you guys catch uh, Chappelle's monologue? I did. I did. I did. I did. I did. Uh, can I say it was muddled? Yeah, I, I, it, I, I felt like he's moving towards this like Lenny Bruce thing where it, that's just his, his stage. Like the, it didn't even feel like the Saturday Night Live thing was meant to be funny. You know what I mean? I do. And mm -hmm. I, I was actually like, is that all he's going to do? Is he not even going to be in the sketches? Because right. Like that, he, I felt to me like he accomplished what he set out to accomplish, which was it's always this like attempt to prick the balloon of mm -hmm. political correctness. And it's like he had kind of developed, let's, let me just say this. And he addressed it in the, the YouTube special 846 or whatever. Like mm -hmm. he had taken the wrong tone last time he did this. 
in the way that he was like, let's give Trump a chance. And now he realizes he, he had taken the wrong tone in that way. This right. time I felt like he said a lot of interesting things. He said a few funny things. Right. Had to get in his weird AIDS joke. And right. The Freddie Mercury joke. Funny joke or what, what mm-hmm. was the women don't deserve to be paid joke. And it's like, it was, it was just weird. And then in the sketches that he was in, he almost seemed to go out of his way to like call attention to the absurdity of it and like to to derail the show's internal mechanism by like right. breaking and right. being, being super weird so like i'm not against that and like i i actually think there's there's a lot of room to like not treat saturday night live like you know the gray lady that needs to be this revered thing it's like a fucking improv sketch show totally every totally. week and like i i we watch it we always watch it it's been terrible this season i feel like they actually hit their stride a little bit the one before which was pretty good and Mulaney is a pretty good host and fits into the vibe of the show so well and Chappelle seemed to like want to disrupt that which I'm not necessarily against but I just didn't think he was very good I didn't think he was very on well he's become this figure that eyes latch on to right after something happens and I don't know if yeah I don't know if he's the right guy for that you know at least anymore at least anymore well I don't think he's the right one for a hopeful moment (laughs) totally he's so cynical well, yeah, I mean, that I align with, so that I don't mind. But, like, um, it's just, like, you know, just no mention of Kamala, you know? I don't know. Just right, little, right. Things, little things like that that irks me, which perhaps may, maybe shouldn't, you know? Like, Damona and I were talking about um, rappers being down with Trump, and it's like, I'm disappointed that I'm still disappointed. Disappointed right. about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really tough uh, because we live in such an entertainment society. We just had a really what was a hack comedian for uh, president for four years. Um, and so I, I think we've, in some ways, we don't know how to interpret events without running to celebrities. And maybe that, maybe that's something we got to work on uh, for this next run, uh, the next four years. It's like what, what rappers and comedians have to say about the issues of the day, maybe not that important. Actually, Michael Che addressed that on Weekend Update, and I, I thought that part was very sharp and actually very well said. It was he, he was like, it was it was kind of about the absurdity of people like thinking rappers represent their communities. Right? Like, yeah. No, they're just rappers. Like, we, <laughs> no, one, no one looks to Little Wayne for political opinions or follows his his takes. Um, Damone. Give us a little more, like what, where, what, where did you land on the Chappelle thing? Like, did, did you find it funny? Did you find it to resonate? Did you care? No, no, I'm, I, I want to be clear. I, I didn't watch the whole thing. Okay. So mm. I just, I, I think I caught like a, a snippet of a, of a joke. So I, I, I want to gotcha. go, I want to go back and watch it. I know that it's very interesting that they had him kind of like bookend the, the Trump years. And I, and I do think a comedian more than even a, a rapper can really have the, the deepest, most insightful social commentary. They totally. Um, I'm not sure if there's too many, too many comedians alive that are really doing that. Um, and I do think we, we probably do need to take a step back from uh, looking to the Dave Chappelle's of the world or, or whoever for, for these like nuggets of, 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 uh, wisdom about how to interpret what's going on right now. I think mm-hmm. the, the the world being on fire requires more 
than a stand-up set or a song. Right. It's not, it's just, it's too complex and it's, it's too far gone for us to expect uh, entertainers to give us the, the feels because every time I, I think the Trump era has shown almost every time a celebrity opened their mouth, 70% of the time it was either not helpful, blatantly bad, or just showed that they're not really paying attention. Totally. I'll, I'll say this. I think stand-ups seem much more brilliant when you see the polished version of their act that they workshopped on the road for mm-hmm. a year. Of course. It's like in their specials, they say all these amazing things because they right. sanded the edges down, right? Right. And so just to kind of like bounce off of that, um, even uh, like newscasters weren't really on the ball on Saturday. Like no, no one really knew how to act. I watched probably more cable news on Saturday than I have in the last certainly four years, maybe eight to 10 years before that. And even Rachel Maddow, who's weirdly in COVID isolation in like some barn somewhere, right. like just kind of didn't have her shit together. And like, mm-hmm. it was cool. One, it was cool to see the newscasters drop their state right countenance and be a little right. giddy, especially obviously she's a liberal totally, uh, totally. person. So it was nice to see her like, you know, dance on the grave a little bit, but also like she did, she just didn't have her thoughts together because trying to respond in real time to earth shattering events isn't anyone's what they're good at totally totally even <laughs> if just they're... processing oh even for, if for a job sure. yeah totally sorry yeah it's it's tough even for us uh polished podcasters uh <laughs> here here on the dad bod rap pod uh we're we're we survived it we're we're moving on we're moving ahead hopefully in a in a positive direction um we are going to stop. Uh, I don't think we ever did this, but I, I, I want to just trumpet what Dave said. Like, we got to stop being disappointed um, by rappers anyway. We're a rap podcast. We got to stop being disappointed by rappers having shitty politics. Because I just totally. that's that is the, the norm. Um, but it is kind of sad in a way. I do think that there was a time in an era where rappers were from their community. And at least felt some shred of obligation to represent those communities in a in a thoughtful way. Some rappers, I won't say all. I'll um, say this: it's they're more rich people than they are rappers in right, the, right. the beliefs that they are espousing at this current moment. Right, at least the ones I think you guys are talking about, and like the the ones that kind of w- went right at the worst time. Like it, it just, I don't think this will be a permanent stain on Lil Wayne's career. I think it will be on the Lil rapper. Is it Lil Peep? Lil, Lil Peep is dead. Lil Pump. Okay, my bad. <laughs> and also Donald Trump called Lil Pimp. So Lil Poop. Um, well, Nick, now can we just call him Lil Trump and ignore him for the rest of the <laughs> I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Um, Kanye will never live down the stain. This will... This will got, be got tens of thousands of votes in some of the places that he got. That just, that just is Orange insane. County. He went over big in Orange County. Uh, surprise guys. Well, all uh, those like TikTok houses uh, probably put him over the edge. <laughs> 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 like, you know what would be hilarious to vote for Kanye? Oh, God. Fucking terrible. Yeah. That's definitely um, not progressive. Um, you know, speaking of progress, though, I mean, 
you know, and speaking of the LA area, progress from making mixtapes to being a rapper, Simone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he used to sell mixtapes. Now he's an MC, and now he's on our podcast. We have the, the great pleasure of being able to talk to Satch Ill Pages, who you would know from his work with The Knots, um, as well as producing and uh, rapping on a bunch of stuff for, for many, many years. Um, the Nance's album World Ultimate uh, turned 25 um, this year, which I totally forgot about and uh, is forgot about how much of a companion piece it is with All Balls Don't Bounce in terms of um, a major label look for West Coast music. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were very fortunate to uh, have him on the program along with uh, his producer pal KTD. Um, to talk about a new project they have out coming out called Breakfast at Earl's. Um, so now that we are we are done with Dead Bod Saves America, we will go into our interview with Satch Ill Pages, Dead Bod Rap. Dad Bod Rap Pod, another week, another dope interview lined up for y'all. On the line, we have Satch Ill Pages. You might know him from his work with The Knots as well as many other projects. He's got an EP coming out very soon called Breakfast at Earl's, and we're happy to have Satch on the program. How's it going, man? Pretty good. Pretty good. Awesome, man. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Um, I just realized in kind of doing the, the research for this interview, World Ultimate turns 25 this year, um, which, is, which is crazy because that's a, a super dope, important record to me, and I can't believe 25 years have gone by. But I just wanted to start by asking you a couple questions about that. Um, your group, The Knots, was affiliated with The Good Life, and I remember hearing you guys and going, you guys are kind of different. From, from the rest of the Good Life MCs. What was that like, kind of coming, coming out of that camp, but you also kind of had a, a different kind of take on, on styles? It was exciting. It was exciting, um, especially as everything started to unfold. And we knew certain groups had talent, and then we, they started getting record deals, and we was able to actually take our production into the studio mm. you know instead of it just being four track production um we did like figures of speech like that uh ganja k uh, there there was there was several several different artists that that we work with like that like right from right out of good life and then like in our home studio then took it right to the big studio that that was that was the greatest feeling like especially doing like ac alone's album mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it was nothing like that well you know um that that's sort of a perfect transition because um when you and i had spoke um a few months ago for the passion of the weiss uh, the making of mixtapes um 
you talked a little bit about AC Alone's impact and, and his friendship with, with you and uh, sort of the time when you guys um, started making moves. Can you let us know a little bit about kind of how you met AC, what your relationship was like, and just sort of, um, you know, shed some light on that for us? Yeah. Um, I met AC Alone through a friend, a mutual friend, Mark the Murderer. Um, is another great LA underground MC, um, incredible freestyle skills. Um, so he already knew AC. I didn't know him yet. You know, I seen him around, but you know, we hadn't worked together, collabed or nothing. And one day I'm chilling with Mark the murderer and he's like, um, let's see if they're going to um, be over there, um, in a cypher. So we called up and he, they was, of course, they was there ciphering. So, uh, we went to AC's house. You know, this is the first time I, I meet AC. Mm-hmm. Is um, I walk in the door, and it's like it's hot as hell, and it's like a living room, and there's like ten MCs in the living room in a in a circle. There's no beat playing; they just rhyming. Mm-hmm. And like I just like walk into this, like you know, it was Napalm. It was it was a lot of different MCs. It was like beautiful, and like you know, that's that's like how I met AC along. You know what I'm saying? Like. Uh, at his house mm. and, um, from that point you know we just like you know talked about different things we were into as far as hip-hop and um, he shared some origins uh, um, um, where they studied their styles from and different things like that and you know we just had like a pretty good relationship mm. and um, he was going solo so he got his deal with capital Right. Um, that's when he approached me and asked if um, the Knots could produce some of the album. And I'm like, of course, you know, like, you know, <laughs> I, I was so excited because, you know, this is the first time for me, like going through this, you know, like seeing like an artist rise and come up and, you know, be at a higher level. And we were doing the same thing, but you know it was still brand new. Mm. Um, so that that's pretty much how how it happened. We um, we did a lot of production on All Balls Don't Bounce. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I, during that time, um, I learned a lot from um, some of the different producers on that album. Mm-hmm. Just their different styles of um, beat production you know, like Fat Jack, you know, a lot, like, um, he always gives me, like, dope pointers, you know what I'm saying, that I used in World Ultimate, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, anyway, um, those sessions that we had, they were really special, too. We recorded all of those, uh, like, World Ultimate, All Balls Don't Bounce, um, at the same studio. We okay. recorded it, um, Kitchen Sink. Dope. Dope. Well, you know, I mean, all all balls don't bounce. Just celebrated its uh, recent anniversary, and uh, the fellas were sort of um, diving in on that a little bit and giving their takes. Uh, we're huge fans of the album. Um, yeah. so just sort of, uh, what what's your take on all balls don't bounce? All these years later, twenty five years later. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't feel like twenty five years. <laughs> I mean, you know, like I'm. I mean, obviously, like I have these gray hairs, but like, yeah, it doesn't feel like <laughs> years. Um, I'm very happy that um, we had that energy at that time mm-hmm. to do 
what we did that we linked together and built that and I can always revisit that energy you know what I mean like it's no times pass you know times go away and it's like it's not like um like how it was but you can kind of delve back through these projects and remember where your mind state was and tune yourself <laughs> you know what I'm saying tune yourself back up to where you're supposed to be or where you could be and then go further right 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 on man right on well you know what um let's uh let, let's bring um your producer kdt to the table what's up Kev? hey hold on hey what's up guys <laughs> thanks for hopping on the program um yeah we're just we're just having a conversation with satch a little bit about the nonsense history and um you know he yeah. obviously satch went on to have a dope solo career and uh, we we know that you have involvement up on the uh, upcoming project can you sort of introduce yourself a little bit for the listeners and you know talk about the project uh my name is katie t produced it and uh oddly enough Satch and i met through a mutual friend on instagram mm. and um we just started politicking after that and we vibed and um then once a week we'd come out to Chatsworth to my studio, lay down some tracks and you know, we got a little project on our hands and um, I don't know, I'm pretty proud of it. This is the first thing I've done on this level. Um, mm. And uh, I mean, Satch is just, it's like the easiest man to work with. <laughs> um, he's just, everything is, I mean, there's like such a vibe here when we come to the studio that, you know, we stop at a place called Earl's Donuts, get some donuts, come back, uh -huh. eat the donuts, drink some coffee, um, get the get the vibe going. We shoot the shit for a bit. Sorry, I don't know if I can cuss or not. Oh, totally. Um, Go in. And we shoot the shit, and then we um, then we get to work. But it's it's all about building like a a vibe, and I think we've we established that on the album that there's like this cohesive vibe between the two of us um that i'm really proud of yeah a lot of the most of the album or the the ep right now i wrote on his porch so it's mm. like it's, it's like this whole little routine you know like after we get the donuts we go lounge on the porch <laughs> for a minute and i'm playing the instrumental and it, it, it just hits me and then it's, it's on it's like a magical thing and then it's off to record the song and we did the whole thing like that it was beautiful dope yeah dope. yeah that's that's yeah, dope. okay so now i understand breakfast at earl's uh how, how that how that comes to be kdt were were you a fan of satch's earlier work with the knots and and producing for for the good life project blood folks uh yeah man mixtapes was the first gem i heard from uh from satch and the nonce and you know i didn't honestly i didn't know much more than than mixtapes mm -hmm. um but as time went on and as my involvement in hip-hop developed and i did more research i started learning more about satch and the nonce and then um you know, and you always respect people who have done these things before you. And um, I mean, our age difference isn't much different, but he's been in the game a lot longer than I have. And, you know, you, you respect the people who have done this before you and set the tone for how things are to be now. Mm. 
And I just, I respected all the work that you guys were talking about. AC Alone and All Balls Don't Bounce. That's one of my favorite albums of all time. Absolutely. Um, you know, so all the work that all the Project Bloodheads, all those cats, like I grew up listening to. Um, and you'd get them on, I'd get them on mixtapes like throughout the years. And I'd hear different things. And um, eventually I started hearing more and more from the nonce. Not that they weren't around. It's just, it wasn't. I wasn't access, it wasn't accessible to me at the time. Mm. So the more it was accessible to me, the more I heard and the more I learned. And for me, that's what this is all about. You know, it's learning where samples come from. It's learning who makes what, um, you know, and the fact that they all did their own, that Satch and Yusuf Afloat did all their own production was incredible to me. Like I loved groups who did their own production and spit on their rap, on their beats. Mm-hmm. Right, 100%, 100%. Satch, um, you know, for, um, KDT just mentioned Yousef, and, you know, sort of for, for listeners who are unaware of that history, can, can you just let people know a little bit about, you know, your relationship with Yousef and obviously sort of your, your working process and that history? Yeah, um, Yousef, that was my partner in the Knots, and um, we met in high school. Um, I was in the ninth grade, he was in the tenth grade. El Camino Real. And, you know, we just kind of kicked it off and that summer came. And, you know, when the summer comes, right before the summer, you know, your friends or whatever, you get their phone numbers and, you know, so you can connect and hang out for the summer. So we wanted to hang out with each other. So that summer, you know, that's when we learned about each other. You know what I'm saying? Like he was a singer. You know, he liked to sing. That was that was what Yusuf loved to do. I mean, he's a genius. He could do any anything. But at this time, he he was a singer, and we had um, a keyboard, and I would do things like say like play um, the Peanut song. You know, the Charlie Brown. <laughs> you know, I say, can you play it? And he'll he'll be like, yeah, I can make it. But he'll send me to the store. You know what I'm saying? Like, he was like a shy producer. You know what I'm saying? He'll send, me, he'll send me to the store. Be like, I go to the store, come back. And he'll be like, push that button. And I'll push the button. <laughs> Damn, it's Charlie Brown right there. And I'm like, uh, you know, he was gifted. So. And um, we started like, well, we friends. And if I do something in rap, then, you know, I'll put you on. You know, we had you know, BTO and TV mentality, like, you know, I'll put you on if I get, if I get in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, if you get on singing, you put, pull me through the door. So we weren't even like a group yet. We were just good friends doing, you know, what we do. Mm-hmm. And one day I was like, I need you to get on this. Just say, you know, and he wrote a rhyme that was dope. Like he wasn't even a rapper right then. He just interesting, you know. And I was like, "Oh, that's fresh." And I guess he got the bug, you know. <laughs> and we started making these songs. And when we made these songs, we were trying to challenge ourselves to uh, make up styles, make up themes, and different things like that. And um, I found this word in the dictionary. The knots, well, knots was the word that I found, mm-hmm. um, which means to 
make up words in a song. You know, Ew. I'm like, this is oh. what the definition said, right? You know, I'm opening it to make up words in a song. And I'm like, that's what we do. We try to do this all the time. We try to make up slang, you know, make up a term for this and, you know, originate that or whatever. So anyway, we made a a song called The Not Song. And it was like, I think we sampled like um, Louis Armstrong with a wonderful world and put a beat to it. And <laughs> it, 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 it was really dope. It's like our early, you know, really, really early stuff. And um, um, we weren't called a knots then. We, mm-hmm. we, you know, we, it was just me and Yusuf together, you know. Mm-hmm. But our little tape was floating around and um, we had like a manager that was trying to manage us. And he's going around saying, um, the the Knotts brothers, you know the Knotts brothers, right? <laughs> we, like, we like no man, that's so close to the Jungle Brothers. Like they didn't have a clue. They, he it wasn't like they were trying to say like we were like the Jungle Brothers. It was just a, a respect that we were two right. brothers. You know you know what I'm saying it, that, right. that's how they describe us. And we was like no 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 no. Let's let's stop that right away before that you know yeah. thing. And uh, we was like. The knots, you know, like just, mm-hmm. <laughs> just cut off the, and that that's it. From that point, we were the knots, you know, that every, from that moment on, and um, we learned how to do everything, you know, like we worked with a four track. Um, we had a Nakai S nine fifty, um, and a, a a keyboard. And that's it. Then you know, we eventually we got like a sequencer, and we had to learn all this stuff because you know there it wasn't no YouTube. It wasn't mm. nobody was really like DJs not even trying to show you what records they scratching. You know, what I'm saying it was <laughs> right. a, you covered you covered a label. It's it's like a, a secretive thing. So we had to figure out how to make beats by dissecting records and listening to like you know like going like how the hell did they do that what is that like you know like okay that's they sampled that okay that's not a person playing that drum i you know mm-hmm. we figure out all these things like okay that's not a drum machine sound that's a sample sound that's a okay that's a synth sound that's a you know once we had a grasp on all those things like my, like i said my partner was was super gifted mm-hmm. and i had a certain type of imagination and we would just sit and talk and make these beats and talk it into existence and put it together and it was magical you know yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's all i can say that's kind of how hey love came about yeah you, know, you hit me up and you're like hey i want to sample this thing that the day that day last soul sampled mm. and um stevie right and then yeah stevie wonder hey love um song titles the same for for us and stevie because i mean we i took that song apart and um i don't know i think that's our best song it's uh and it came about the same way you know we we were just talking and then satch was like hey man you should take apart uh hey love from stevie wonder and i was like all right and i went through my records and i found it and just chopped it up and pieced it together and then you know it became what it is and and now we've got you know two the cherry on 
the cherry on top for me it was the set you know like sometimes you got like the first idea but then you get like the second idea on top of that one mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and i was like i was like okay see if it's a uh, a live version or something like you know what I'm saying and he came, oh man this, I love this beat this beat is dope it's, it's dope it's like oh no you gotta play it hey love <laughs> okay okay oh, I'm, Earl is dope okay I'm I'm excited to uh to to peep this um I want to I'll, I'll throw out this next question to both of y'all um Satch you, you talked a little bit about some of your and Yusef Afloat's origin story I'm wondering for both of you, what are those foundational artists um, who you were listening to, who you were studying when you were uh, developing your style, your sound? I, I, when I when I first heard the knots, I know I felt like these are West Coast heads, but they obviously have um, some kind of boom bap, native tongue-ish influences, or at least that's how it sounded to me. So I'll throw yeah. it to you, Satch, first. What what yeah. were those artists that that were like foundational for you um, as you were are turning into an, an artist yourself? Um, it was um, Jungle Brothers, De La, and Tribe. That was <laughs> what like when I really started feeling like I could identify with something mm-hmm. in my early early stages of becoming an MC. That was what I identified with. You know, I, I, I was one of them to me, you know, like in my heart, you know what I'm saying? Like it was that fresh, it was that fresh, that dope that, you know, it influenced me like hella, like still to today. Yeah. But um, yeah, we, 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 we listened to their production and we also listened to a lot of other production. We listened to everything like that. That was, like you said, that was like a foundation part, those three groups. But really, the foundation is everything that came before that, because we were listening to it. You know what I'm saying? We were like scholars in in that. You know what I'm saying? Like everything that came out, we listened to it and decided if we liked it or didn't or what we, you know, like that's what helped us with our production, because we understood it after listening and dissecting so much, we could understand what was going on at a particular point. And when we got to that point, all hip hop was different. Mm. Like where I was a fan of things or I like this or that, I became real picky and real critical because I know how you did it. And I have that, you know, like I know how much effort you put into it you know to make it and it's almost like the best example i can give i don't know if you guys ever trip but if you look at like say a woman's hair that has a weave and you don't know what a weave is you Mm -hmm. just see beautiful hair you know you can't even see you can't even see right the thing Right. But as soon as somebody show you what a weave is and how you see it, you can't help but to not see yeah. it all the time. Yeah. And it's like it ruins <laughs> what you thought, you know, like, oh, that was she was fine. Like, but no, it's not saying she wasn't fine, but you know, now you just can see like, oh, it's a little trickery going on there. Mm-hmm. That's how yeah, that's how it was. That. That's how it was when we learned how to produce. 
hip hop, like the like the little veil came off, and it was like, okay, there's levels of art artistry in it, and there's levels of I don't know the opposite of that. Yeah, in it, and you know we can see it very plainly. Um, that was a, that was also good, you know, because we was on guard, you know, for you know similar like how things are now. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like we were feeling the tugs of what's going on now, you know, like before it really was showing itself. Mm. Word. Uh KDT, what what are what are some of your foundational influences? You know, for me, the first hip hop song I heard, I was in I don't know, I was like in third grade and some kid had a boom box and he brought a UTFO Roxanne Roxanne. Mm -hmm. tape with him and he teacher left the classroom he popped the tape in started bumping it and like i fell in love with hip-hop right there but when i really started studying hip-hop and and like Satch said breaking things down was de la soul three feet high and rising um de la soul is dead tribe called quest all those albums um the, definitely the jungle brothers uh also freestyle fellowship was one of those groups um and then i started i studied producers like prince paul who produced dayla's first three albums uh kid capri pete rock um and then later on mad lib and jd and all those cats so it's just been a progressive you know i'm i i i'd like to think i'm always a student of the of the game of production and and um you know as long as i'm listening to new stuff you know, then I, I can't help but learn. But the problem I have is I get stuck listening to my own stuff to make sure it's everything's all right in the way I like it. Yeah. And then I forget that there's other shit out there. And then I'll go like a month without listening to anything new. And then I'll realize like, oh shit, this came out, this came out, I gotta peep this. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just like staying on top of like, you know, what's being done see if I can figure out little tricks that other people are doing and um, implementing that in my own, in my own game. And then, you know, having my own little tricks, you know, I was schooled by a cat named my Frexall from the shapeshifters. Mm. Okay. Um, and, uh, and he taught me a lot, you know, it was like a lot of self-learning, a lot of like calling him up on the phone and being like, Hey man, can you peep out this beat I just made just before cell phones and file sharing and <laughs> you hold the phone up to the speaker and it's all distorted and you can't hear any of the bass. Um, and then he'd be like, you give me let tips and we'd come over, work on beats together. So he was definitely a big influence as, as well as um, other cats like Prince Paul, P. Rock, Mad Lib, J. Dilla, um, Kid Capri, cats like that. Dope, dope. I mean, those are all foundational masters right there. Um, you know, guys, as, as we uh, sort of bring this to a conclusion, um, let, let the folks know about Breakfast at Earl's, uh, you know, the, when it's going to drop, um, any, any guests on there, any surprises, anything we should know so that the people can pick it up and peep it. Go ahead, Kev. Uh, Breakfast at Earl's is going to drop on December 1st, 2020. Uh, the picture disc vinyl is available for pre-order at the website, uh, kdtmusic.com. Uh, you can see our brand new video that dropped today. Uh, it's an animated okay. video. Uh, you can peep that there. Um, 
And I just want to give a shout out to my homie, Josh Stone. He did the picture disc artwork for the vinyl. Um, a cat named Demir Inbar did the animation for the video. So it's all tight. It all comes together and everything will drop on December 1st, 2020. And you can pre-order the album at my website, kdtmusic.com. Yeah, so everybody, please go get it. They won't last because the picture disc is so beautiful besides the music that's so beautiful that accompanies it. But just mark my words, they're going to go fast. Okay. You heard it. You heard it here on Dad Bod Rap Pod. We want to thank KDT, Satch. Just thank you guys, man. Appreciate it. We'll definitely be on the lookout for the new project. Thank you so much. Oh, real real quick, real quick. Yep. Um, before, well, let's say like after the new year, there's going to be a Yusuf Afloat triple vinyl coming. Wow. Oh, dope. Okay. You heard that here first. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I had it all, um, mastered and it's, um, in the process right now, HHV is going to, uh, release it. It's going to be incredible. Wow. That's, that's, that's certainly, um, exciting, man. And we're going to have to have you back on the program to talk about, talk about that a bit. Yeah. Yes. I'd love to. Perfect, man. Well, yo, thank Thank you again, you guys. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Peace. 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 Thank you. Dad Bod Rap Pod, that was our conversation with Satch Ill Pages and KTB. We want to thank them for coming on the program. Also, be on the lookout for Breakfast at Earl's. Uh, it should be coming out, or I think should be out by the time you, that you hear this episode. Um, we got a double-decker, though, of, of interviews coming up uh, for you. So we want to just set a little bit of context. We've been sitting on the the next interview for like a couple a month or so um conversation we had with a a great author laurent and tony and tone and uh nate tell us a little bit because you actually read the book yeah tell us a little bit about his book um and kind of the ground that he's covering with this work sure um so I first heard about this on Twitter. I was familiar with uh, Laurent's work as a writer. And he mentioned that he was working on this book about the intersection of hip hop, instrumental hip hop production and electronic music, which is a subject that I'm really interested in. And um, we, we, we just reached out on Twitter and I was like, hey, you know, love to interview you for the show. And they were like, okay, cool. Let me finish writing the book. <laughs> and then like when it's done so what we we ended up getting in touch with Laurent himself and his publisher in the UK High Velocity Press and we were just I've just been all over this is basically what I'm trying to demonstrate like I've been really excited about this and I really want this book to do well and of all the books that we've covered this year this one has been the most interesting to me because it it I feel like it's the one that most needed to be discussed and mm-hmm. at a time and I believe this kind of starts in the late 
90s for me anyway like i was i had gone from like native tongues obsessive to like backpack kid and then as i was kind of getting bored with that it was like the instrumental side of hip-hop starting with your kind of dj shadows mm -hmm. and your kind of um yeah. cinematic beatscape type fellows dj crush um who i know dave is big on as well um then you start getting weirder and the the hip-hop form the the structure starts to break and to me, that's when it got really exciting. And so record labels like Warp and um, Ohm at the time, Ohm Records had this mm -hmm. really, this compilation called Deep Concentration that was really important yeah. to me and mm -hmm. just like really like set my head back. Um, just, I just would browse the hip hop section as well as the electronic section. And then I made some friends, especially uh, shout out to my man, DJ Basura, who was really into what they used to call IDM or intelligent dance music, mm -hmm. super into Aphex Twins, super into Autechre. Um And that stuff was always a little bit too intense for me. I like things that are rooted in the hip hop time signatures and form a little bit more, but I think the, the, electronic hip-hop sound of like a push button objects and the miami scene that laurent mm. explores in the book is just really really good music that really suited its time and spoke to kind of a pre-millennial angst and frankly it's some stoner shit dude like if you were like me in like a dorm room or a cheap apartment with your buddies smoking weed you needed to listen to a lot of beats and mm -hmm. we were listening to a ton of this kind of music. And so that's why I was interested in it. And I think the book does a beautiful job of breaking it down scene by scene, regionally, worldwide. Laurent just did an unfathomable amount of research and interviews. And I think he put it together really well. So that's, that's basically what we're talking about. Bedroom Beats and B-Sides, uh, new book. It's out now by the time that you're listening to this. Um, it's set up, the chapter structure is very interesting. Um, I was able to read a couple chapters um, and it's, it's really set up kind of like a, a tape um, mm -hmm. where he takes this approach and I, I won't ruin it because he, he explains it in more detail in the actual interview, but um, I'm there with you, Nate. Uh, I was uh, also a dis somewhat disillusioned backpacker um, coming out of the mid nineties and really gravitated to a lot of the things that ended up being called trip hop. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny you say push button objects. Like I obsessed over that first record um, and just a lot of things that Ninja Tune and Moax were doing at that time. And I, I felt like um, in a lot of ways it was Europe's, even though there were a lot of American, um, you know, people who were doing that type of stuff. I think this was kind of Europe's comment, um, or at least that's how I interpreted it, especially the UK, their comment on how this shit should sound. I think ever since rap left New York, um, every region has kind of made a comment. The West Coast has definitely made its comments about this is how it sounds to us. And so um, I do feel like a lot of the uh, stuff he covers in the book, um, which is very broad ranging, but it, it starts with his experience in Europe covers covers a lot of the the people and artists and sound from that era so i just remember taking that but i also remember hitting kind of a high uh hitting the wall with that as well mm -hmm. and going you know all right is this kind of just 
techno or electronic that you you're throwing a break beat under or something there. I remember there was a time where I'm like, I don't know if this works anymore. But then, and Laurent gets into these, into some of these chapters, I feel like beat scene, um, LA in particular as a city, um, and, and the work of people like Flylo took that energy and just took it to, made it more and less hip hop at the same time. And, and kind of brought us into the present day where you could argue beats are more popular um, than they've ever been, like beats. Like to listen to a beat tape in 95, you were a rapper. Like, totally, no one totally. Else listened to beat tapes, like that experience. And so I, I do feel like um, that, that era uh, helped kind of get us to this, this present day. Dave, you, you're, a, you're a heady guy. Uh, <laughs> you you like spacey things? How how did the uh, the move towards you know you're obviously a, a big DJ Crush fan? How did your kind of relationships with instrumental hip hop um, and electronic kind of evolve coming out of the the backpack era? Um, I uh, sort of like Nate. Um, the door was kicked open with like spit with things like intro, uh, introducing. You know what I mean? And for me, my experience was like it was like it was like consuming all the reggae ever and then realizing that there's a dub section you know what I mean so it was kind of like that where like Nate was saying like oh there's square pusher here and there's uh, Tommy Guerrero here but sort of uh, Laurent's book um, talks about how the technology merged the two a little bit so I really like that aspect of the book and you know we get a lot of books beforehand and a lot of them have been very good but um, Laurent's w was a standout for sure. I really liked the writing and to your point earlier, Damone, like the layout of the chapters and stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, that whole era, I, I love. I love that music. Um, I love that uh, beat tapes used to be tools before they were, you know, mm -hmm. projects, right? I mean, they were tools for MCs to rap over and practice. So it was, um, it was really cool to see Laurent like cover that and especially from a bedroom perspective. I mean, I love homespun bedroom shit to begin with. So yeah, it was really great to have him on the program. Um, the book is out now, I believe. So yes, it just dropped. And we, we, we interviewed him, I think under like pretty inconvenient circumstances for him. I believe he was in a hotel room in Vienna or something <laughs> as soon as we possibly could. And then we, we had a lot of internal debate about when to right, right. interview and just to peel back the curtain a little bit. I wanted to wait until more of you had a chance to check out the book. And so I'm sure that totally. not everyone rushed out and bought it on release day, which I believe was last week sometime, but like it's, it's a, it's a book that you can kind of get lost in. And if you follow along and like kind of like YouTube or Spotify, the different tracks that he mentions, you can be there mm -hmm. for a long time. Like it's, it's quite, it, there, there's a lot of ground to cover. And I will say like, not mm -hmm. all of this music speaks to me. Like I have the, my things I like and my things I don't like. And before we leave, I just briefly want to talk, touch on, what I think is the most successful um, melding of the hip hop and electronics worlds. And that's the early work of Prefuse 73 and Debris from Ann sure. Arbor. Um, sure. Dave, you and I were both obsessed with um, vocal studies oh. and uprock narratives and yep. a lot of Prefuse's work. And can you just talk about like why it resonated with you for a minute? Well, it, I mean, for me on a personal tip, like that was when I was like, 20 years old, I had just bought an MPC. I was learning how to sample and trigger samples and cut samples. And um, then you hear something like from, from Prefuse that is just a complete left turn. I mean, it has a lot of the tenets 
of the music that we love. And, and, you know, he even had like a lot of MCs that we liked and MCs that were of the moment on his, uh, on the, on Uprock, Uprock narratives. Um, so it was like a merger and a left turn. And that, and that's what I liked about it. It, it was certainly a style that quickly got old and I'm only talking about preppies. Um, one word extinguisher has some great songs on it as well. Um, there's a Tommy Guerrero track speaking of merging. Um, the Tommy Guerrero track with um, the Prefuse track, I think, is great. Um, yeah, I mean, it definitely spoke to me. I really like how the, the technology kind of pushed it forward because it was like, at first, you're like, what is Prefuse using? You couldn't even tell. You know what I mean? It was so glitchy, but like so in tune and on time. So, I mean, that, that's how it spoke to me. But certainly, I think the, the Steeds got a little bit old. Sure. I, I, it, it certainly couldn't last forever. And I think... Um once you once you figured out the magician's trick right it wasn't right. as interesting anymore but for me totally. the thing that's really interesting about that style of music in particular is it broke things not down to just hits that you could program on the mpc but like the kind of fractals or shards right. of those hits and then mm -hmm. using those to recreate something that just had so much texture and totally. Debris' take on it in particular is this like ice cold sci-fi John Carpenter mm -hmm. like right. doom version right. of this glassy broken beat hip hop that is so cool. Like his his album Instrumental, which is um, mm -hmm. it's like the word instrumental without the vowels that Prefuse put out on his Eastern Developments label. Like those those two records to me, if you guys don't know what we're talking about and I hear from people that they often don't know what we're talking about and the fact that they still listen blows me away. Thank you. But if you're still here and you don't know what we're talking about, go to Spotify or something and listen to Prefuse 73, Vocal Studies and Uprock Narratives and then Debris instrumental album and just like picture our 20 year old minds being completely blown away <laughs> by like where they took production. Right. Like, right. You've studied beats and like break beats and like the evolution of chopping and layering samples. They, they took it so much further than the golden era guys had, but I just think right. it's supremely interesting. And some of those tricks and um, techniques are still fueling the LA beat scene, oh, yeah. whatever's happening past that. I know Demos, oh, yeah. you're really into EPROM and like things that are, I think yeah. are too chaotic, but talk about where things are now. Yeah. So I, and I, I don't want to present myself as, as an expert, but I, I definitely feel like the, the, that kind of prep use era late nineties um, was research and development of what you could do with the beat. Um, and, mm. and that's kind of how I look at that era. And it, it definitely tracks closely to uh, turntablism as well is like what you could do with a record. Right. Like, so I think it's one of those musical movements that um, you, you, have to de you have to destroy something in order to rebuild it. Mm. And I feel, like, um, I feel like the prep use era um, and kind of the IDM stuff bled into something that ended up being a little bit funkier and maybe a little bit more musical when we start to get towards the low end theory, um, the party um, that Daddy Kev uh, put together in LA is mm -hmm. the party ran for, for a decade in LA, which was like um, a congealing spot for um, a lot of people who I think were on the same wave, a lot of producers and people who were, had their ears open to a lot of different sounds and weren't just kind of uh, hip hop classical uh, dudes. 
And so um, I think all the lessons from that combined with like, um, you know, what you can do now with the low end, like, and what you can do with, with subs and like how you can uh, freak frequencies to create all kinds of new music. And of course, you know, we can, you can talk about dubstep, you can talk about right, uh, right. Um, how trap has influenced these things, but all of it, I do think goes back to this era where um, hip hop breaks away from the rapper. The rapper mm -hmm. stops being the focal point of the music. And I'm not sure if Laurent talked about this in an interview or somebody else we talked to, but once it stops being about the rapper, you can just do so many more things, right? And so right. I think that's where we're at now is kind of like all of these techniques and really genres just kind of fell apart. Like when you listen to Lilo at his best, you know, he's techno, funk, hip hop, mm -hmm. like he's all the things and nobody trips about that anymore. But what Whereas it I really think, is, is like a brand new form of jazz. Like he's hugely influential yeah. right. on right. the yeah. whole, you know, the kind of Kamasi Washington and international artist mm -hmm. jazz scene. It, it's, he's so... Yeah virtuosic in his technique that it became a form of jazz like which is incredible and we could get into a whole thing about Flylo and his lineage as um you know Alice Coltrane's nephew and all that yes. stuff but yes. um he he's pretty clearly a genius and I will say his music does not move me very often I like the lighter side of things um mm -hmm. the more the more kind of like I I, I the the less glitchy the less fast you guys know me. I'm just, I, I can't take it when it gets too crazy. Yeah, I, I find oh, it, a lot of his music to be headache inducing, especially live. Sir, sir, <laughs> if I may, if I may, Computer Face, Pure Being, featuring, featuring uh, Tom York. Have we heard it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I thought you were like calling me a computer face <laughs> being. And I, I, I wasn't appreciating it. We're all on computers. It's quarantine. <laughs> You're a computer. Yeah, no, he, he has beautiful stuff. And that, that I can't remember the name of the track, but it has that great video with Lil Buck dancing mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. there's there's like a kendrick verse like it's just oh, yeah. so beautiful yeah. he has he has work that's so beautiful but i saw him live yeah. in a small club once and i was like i feel like i'm being destroyed by those you know that show where robots used to fight yeah. <laughs> it, was like I, it was like i was the, the you know the enemy all the, robot. all the robots were killing me there was just so <laughs> many things happening oh, at once so my good. my puny brain can't take it you were that, the tonka truck yeah I got rocked and snocked by robots. <laughs> a great description of, of what it was like to be at a at a good low end theory party. Yeah, you were being you were being assaulted. Like you were literally were being assaulted with with bass and and uh, short attention span uh, beat stuff. And so we're uh, you know I think we're all kind of influenced by it. And I think the whole game is now. I just I can't get over mm -hmm. the fact that. Um, you know, if you go to YouTube right now, there are literally thousands, if not millions of just beats. Right. It sort of ties, in, sort of ties into Laurent's um, whole thesis, too, with the merging of the technology, because now yes. anybody can kind of at least attempt to be a Philo. Yeah. You know, you, you I, yeah. just download a program and you're ready to go. What I think is super interesting is you don't have to be the producer for something else that the producer can just be an artist. Mm -hmm. And like, mm -hmm. it, it, I think that's a beautiful thing and it's made careers for so many more guys 
Like, I don't know if you guys remember this, but when we were talking to Eloquent, who's like you know, kind of like a lo-fi-ish, but still very much in the hip hop world, like kind of a Fruity Loops, SP404 kind of producer. Um, he was like, oh yeah, San Jose. I know San Jose. I got peoples in San Jose. Like the, the beat scene is so worldwide and so right. widespread and so international that he... Yeah had homies in our small you know it's not a small town but it feels like a small cultural presence town right at times and that that blew me away and right. i think he's a really good example of he doesn't have to have rappers on his stuff he has a full-on career he's a, mm-hmm. he's a career artist at this point just doing beats and they're not even especially electronic but the lane that was opened up by the right technical prowess and the the savvy marketing and like Damone I'm so glad you mentioned Ninja Tune earlier um I have just the briefest story one day I was at home I don't remember why I was at home but my sister was cutting school and so I'm like 15 maybe 14 something like that and this dude he was like kind of like a Hesher looking dude came over and I don't know what they were doing you know you just go to people's houses who whose parents aren't home like just because it's somewhere <laughs> to be that's not class and he right. was sitting on my uh, parents fireplace and I was like talking to them and he had this shirt on and it was the first Ninja Tune logo with the ninja thing throwing the record. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was just like, what is that? And he kind of wasn't eloquent enough to explain really what it was. He was like, oh, it's a record label. And like, basically from that point on, it was one of my life's goals to discover what this amazing sounding thing was. Ninja mm-hmm. Tune. What right. the fuck does that mean? Right. So when I right. first started buying records, it was like, you know, you'll get like a peanut butter wolf record and like a, a shapeshifters record. And then it's like, I got to get this Amon Tobin record. Totally. It's like it's on that record label. That guy had the coolest shirt I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think because they often didn't use their faces as the hook for the right marketing of the records. It opened up this whole world of kind of like computerized art and Mm -hmm. animation. Um, Just another really brief story about this. And then I think we should probably throw to the interview pretty soon. I remember one time I got this Autekker record because I was really trying to understand it because all the people I think are cool liked it. And uh, it came with a, disc like a second disc like a cd-rom dvd kind of thing that like animated their insane crazy futuristic beatscapes and it was basically just like a silver blob that was exploding in all the directions of the music and my dad happened to came home while i was watching it and he was like turn this off (laughs) it was was like my dad's hella cool he's hella open-minded but he was like i don't know what you're watching but it's disturbing. You need to turn this yeah. off right now. And I was like, I'm with you, dude. I kind of had enough after like 10 minutes, but that's anyway, hilarious. Uh, so your, your dad was also Matmos intolerant. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's wow. pretty good. That's actually way more of a meat kind of joke. And I appreciate it. I have to say, I used to really love the Matmos record, the civil war. Have you guys ever heard that record? Yes, totally. Cool. Totally. I just, I, I've been thinking about that record a lot and wanted to listen to it while I was. Up yeah. I mean, I, I mean, you guys just mentioning Ninja tune. I'm a, I was super into it as well and sort of had the same experience. Like, what is this coolest fucking sounding label ever with the coolest logo yeah. ever? You yeah. know? Yeah. And you find and, and out it's like 
founded by the guys from Cold Cut who played this really interesting totally. role in early totally. hip hop and cut and paste besties. We could literally do this all day. But to, <laughs> sort of to bring and, it back. And perhaps we should at some point <laughs> do, a, do, a, do a Ninja Tune, uh, Ninja Tune deep dive. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting the points of overlap. I think Laurent's book um, does an excellent job of like weaving it all together. Um, mm -hmm. and so and I just feel like I, I had kind of put this stuff behind me at some point I like sold a bunch of the records and I thought it was like music I wasn't into anymore and I will say that reading this book uh, got me back interested in a lot of this stuff like it, maybe it wasn't so much of a phase maybe I just needed to put it away for a while right. and well, frankly we listen to so much vocal hip-hop to kind of keep current for the show it doesn't leave a ton of room to explore what's going on in this stuff now but um, I don't, do you guys feel the same way? Uh, it, it having a lack of lyrics, I think just speaks to the universality of it. You know what I mean? Like just, yeah, yeah the, the whole thing. I mean, yeah, the, again, the, the lack of lyrics, I think is, is a great um, joiner for everything. Well, I think when, when there's no lyrics, you get to fill in your own thoughts. Um, and I think that is what really is propelling uh, the beat scene right now. I think we're in kind of a, I don't want to, the golden age term is thrown around a lot, but you know how you look back at the 70s and like, they just had wild library records, man. Just like, right, right, like right. all kinds. Like, right. And there were instrumentals that would chart. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. You know what I mean? And I, and I think we're, we're finally getting to that point where the, through electronic music, fusing with hip hop and, and this kind of what ended up being a beat scene has given a, uh, rap beats and musicality um, that allows them to live on their own. And so um, as, as Nate mentioned, uh, I have definitely more of an electronic streak than probably even shows up on this program because I stay on brand, but, uh, <laughs> but definitely uh, a couple chapters in his book made me want to go back and kind of uh, dig up and, and re-listen to the things I haven't heard in a while. And I, and I think it will for you too, as well as give you some like new, um, new old things and new new things to check out, and and there's backstories and there's a great um, there's a great part about uh, the life and work of Ross G. Um, mm. That is that is in the book. So uh, without further ado, let's go to our interview with Laurent Fintone and his new Fintone. book Bedroom Beat. Fintoni. I struggle with with the Italian uh, last name. <laughs> Laurent La and Tony, Bedroom Beats and B-Sides, Dad Bob Rap Party. Welcome to the program, Lara Bentoni. How's it going, man? Hey, hey guys, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. Um, you've got a, a new book out that is this amazing journey through like the life cycle of beats, I don't know, 92 to, to present. 
almost. I thought it was really interesting that you started off by talking about as, uh, as someone who's from France and who has picked up English as a second language, how some of the hip hop that you were first introduced to from America was not uh, as accessible to you um, right. in that sense. And so it made you kind of gravitate towards beats. And so my question is, in my own kind of uh, analysis or looking at what trends were back then, I would say that in America, there was this like dividing line. You were into hip hop or you were kind of into these experimental electronic things, right? Right, um, right? And it seems like in Europe, those two things were more melded. And I'm wondering, do you think it had anything to do with um, what you talk about is when you're accessing uh, hip hop and English is not your first language, you kind of lock into beats more and have a deeper appreciation for beats? Yeah. Question mark. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I think, I mean, you know, perhaps to kind of give a little bit more context, uh, that kind of separation between hip hop and for lack of a better word, like electronic music, um, definitely was probably lesser in the uk i want to say that in france where like where i grew up like it definitely actually also existed if anything france was a lot more like the us um there were obviously some exceptions i'd say most of them were probably in paris and ended up being people that kind of got involved in what became the french touch kind of house thing in the late 90s and some of those people were part of like Moax a few years before and so you know there was like those guys, uh, La Funk Mob, and then there was like DJ Cam. But you know, even that stuff was like really just like instrumental hip hop beats. It wasn't so much kind of like so different stylistically. But um, yeah, the language, I think, to get to your point, for sure, I think the language was one thing. But you know, we had like France had a really healthy scene. I want to say that that was probably more of a thing in the UK um, in the sense that like, Obviously, the UK shares the language, but the UK didn't have, well, there was a sense that the UK didn't have the quality of rappers that the US had, obviously, do you know what I mean? And I think one of the arguments that's been made before, and I kind of subscribe to it, is that what happened with Trip Up was partly, um, same with Jungle, was partly a result of, you know, the UK not having the access to the rappers that, the, that America had to a degree. And so, you know, it was easier for would-be producers to make beats and whack a bunch of samples on them and put them out than it was to try and find a rapper that could certainly at that time also mm. like make sense, make sense for like a record company to sell. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, especially when you're talking about, you know, depending, I guess, on where you stand, but like one of the golden eras of like American rap in terms of certainly the stuff that was coming out, you know, of like the East Coast and the West Coast, like early to mid 90s, and even the rise of the South, it's like, there's a lot going on in the US. And I think a lot, a lot of people that I spoke to, you know, they said they were like, it was just easier for me to make beats and not have to think about hustling for a rapper. Um, which isn't to say that there wasn't good English rap because there's great English rap. But you know, there was always that kind of little brother syndrome. And I think in France, there was the thing of like, the language was the big barrier. Okay, dope, dope. Laurent, I love, I love the, um, the format of the book and how everything's a beat tape and all that. But, and I'm just going to jump around a little bit though. Um, I love yeah, the yeah. fact, I love the fact that, you know, we can read about boards of Canada and Paul C 
and uh, you make you make all these connections and the, and you connect these dots. Um, I came across a section where you go from King Tubby to Eno, and you mentioned yeah. how you mentioned how Brian Eno um, in 1979 stated that uh, I think hip hop producers, I think he referred to them as sculptors. Um, can you connect the dots for people a little bit, um, just yeah. a little bit, of, uh, you know, regarding the the chronology of that, and say, you know, somebody who might not see the same tenants run through King Tubby as they do Brian Eno's work. Word. Um, yeah, that kind of section that you referred to is kind of the beginning of the book. It was, um, <sighs> so the book's been through a, a, a bunch of kind of changes over the years, but the, the central, one of the central ideas was always this, this idea of the producer as artist. Mm-hmm. I came to that idea via what was happening in the beat scene in the late 2000s and the sort of um, how, you know, it's so weird to think that this is like 12 years ago now, but I guess it is like a decade ago. Uh, you know, how basically like kids started like getting on stage and like performing with their laptops and they were like, you know, doing things that to a degree were normal. It's not like nobody had done it before, but it was kind of a new iteration of it. And it was certainly very different to, I think, some what the people that came before them did. And that sent me down kind of thinking about this idea of the producer as artist. And in doing that, you know, I did a lot of, research that's one of the subjects that's probably been kind of like written about the most i would say uh, there's some great books there's one called the producer as composer if i remember correctly which is like an academic book but it's actually really decent and that makes that does a lot of work as well of like kind of tracing a chronology from the kind of inception of the industry and so that's kind of where that idea came from of kind of showing that this idea of the producer as artist is a not new but that you know it links somebody like Toby and somebody like Eno and I think you know what Eno said back then I think very much then this idea of Jamaican artists like Toby being more like sculptors and you know I can't I think it's in the same piece I can't remember I'd have to have a look but I think essentially the kind of argue, you know the counterpoint being that like Western Producers and artists were more like painters. So I guess you could think of like a George Martin in that regard, who was the producer for the Beatles. Um, you know, if you think about what the, Beatles, what the Beatles did in terms of studio production and things like that, there was definitely that element of like, you know, and same with Led Zeppelin, right? That whole thing in the 70s, it's like people were just like layering stuff on top of each other. It was like this kind of like the whole studio boom thing and the whole production evolutions that came with that was very much about people like adding more tracks making more things doing mm-hmm. more stuff for us like tubby and tubby and others in jamaica were like strip it back and like and dub and get to sort of like the essence of it and i think you know i don't think that it's the case of one's better than the other i think it's that kind of balance thing yin yang you know like you need both and i think what's interesting is we've gotten to a point where like those two things I think are as integral to pop music today than they've ever been. They're like, you know, they're both present. There's some great pop music that's like tons of layers of stuff and there's great pop music that's like stripped back. Uh, Yeah. That uh, leads into something that I wanted to make sure to talk to you about. The, uh, he's a primarily a photographer, uh, Brian Cross or B plus. Yeah. He, he's quoted quite a bit in the LA sections of your book and he's kind of a, a man about town and he wrote one of the earliest hip hop books and he's just, just an awesome 
figure, so I was glad to see him quoted, and he said something, and it was ostensibly about DJ Shadow's album introducing, but it really, it really struck me in that he said the kind of rise of instrumental hip-hop was because uh, we needed music that gave us room to think, mm -hmm. and I, I found that to really hit home because I found myself listening to the most instrumental hip-hop I ever did when I was in college, and I needed sure. like kind of things to that I need, I always had to have music on, but I needed to read. I always needed to have music on, but I needed to write. I always needed to have music on, but I was like, you know, it was just kind of a soundtrack of my life. And I think, and again, this is kind of a long question, but I'm getting there. Um, we've moved a bit away from that with the current uh, beat scene stuff where it's, it's not so much about background that as you move forward through up to kind of the 2010s producer as artist moment, it got really complicated again. Um, mm -hmm. And I wonder if you kind of agree with that. And if you, if you think that um, part of the foregrounding of the producer as artist means that they paint a little bit more, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think that's definitely a thing that that's happened. And I think, you know, I mean, shadow, with introducing did quite a lot of painting if we're going to continue the metaphor um especially i mean i'm trying to think like what would be a kind of like maybe i mean compared to say like some of the stuff that was happening at the time um that was definitely a bit more stripped back like maybe spooky i mean that's another one that's kind of mentioned in the book and i think there's an interesting parallel there and uh i refer like there's a reference to uh, some stuff that oliver wang kind of argued which is i think also very kind of significant about mm -hmm. differences between how dj spooky and dj shadow were kind of like seen at the time and i think spooky definitely was maybe a bit more tubby like in his approach this stuff is very cut and paste and very collage at the time it's not super layered it's much more about that kind of like sculpting idea you could argue mm -hmm. um and then yeah we went through phases and i think we're definitely back somewhere where like it got a lot more intense i think again it's that thing of it i i don't know if i don't think i ended up kind of making a huge thing of it in the book but it was originally something that i thought about a lot um but it's study of cycles you know and everything is cyclical in life and everything is in the universe and you know but cycles are I think the kind of there's a misconception that you know there's like things repeat themselves. It's not so much that things repeat themselves, it's that they do so in different contexts. So it's like more spiral than cycle, right? And I think that's kind of where we're at. So it's like things kind of echo what happened before, but slightly different. And um, yeah, I think you know we we've gotten back to a point where where things are like that for sure. So you, you touched a little bit on uh, some of the beat scene stuff. I was wondering if you could talk about uh, low end theory. There's an entire sure. chapter in your book about low end theory. But for folks yeah. who weren't able to go to the physical space or experience that, that moment, uh, why is that so significant? That's a good question. Um, I like low end, and I mean, to a degree, LA, like, you know, the book, the book tries to make a case for this as a, as a global culture and a global moment. And, and I think, you know, my own background 
and path through things. I think is a testament to that. Like I grew up in France, I lived in the UK, I lived in Japan, I lived in the States. Like I've kind of been around. I think the global, you know, I've seen that the beat scene like everywhere I've been. Like I, I've witnessed it. But in the same way that like Shadow and Moax became that thing in the '90s, and so you know, like the UK was like trip up, and that was that was what everybody understood it as. I think that's kind of what low end and, and LA to a degree were to like the BTC moment of the late 2000s. It's like you always need kind of catalysts. You always need central focal points. And low end was the right place at the right time in the right city and a city that is super important to the story because it's just full of people that really contributed in quite meaningful ways, you know, from people like Sarah. I know you guys spoke to Shafiq recently you know, all the way to like somebody like Carlos Nino. Um, so anyways, yeah, low end, low end is, is kind of, I mean, you know, it's the club night that defined the beat scene for lack of a better word. There were other club nights and, you know, it's not to say that they weren't important either. They all were, but low end lasted the longest. I mean, I've struggled to think of another weekly club night in the last 15 years that lasted for, more than 10 years straight i think they only took a break for like a couple of weeks because they were out of the venue for a while mm-hmm. but they were always at the same place it was always the airline it was always the airliner apart from like mm-hmm. they had to leave the airliner for about a month and then and i think it's like seven weeks that they couldn't do it at the airliner but aside from that you're talking about 12 years at the same venue in the same part of town every wednesday and what that does is means that if you go to la during that time and it's Wednesday and yep. you like beats, you're like, yep. oh, I just got to go to the airliner and I'll see everybody yep. and I'll hear, I'll hear whatever the new shit is. And I mean, that's what I did. You know, I first went to low end. I mean, I first went to LA in January, 2013. And I went to low end and I saw, I saw everybody and I met a bunch of people that I did know. And, and then every time after that, that I went back, it was always like that. And yep. you know, the closest experience to that for me was in London with plastic people which was uh, Plastic People's venue rather than a club night, but it was just as important, I would say, as Low End. Uh, but more to like music in general. And Plastic was where dubs, part, of the, what, part of what became Dubstep was incubated, as well as Grime. And Plastic was there. It was like just any night of the week in London, go to Plastic, you'll hear dope shit. You'll probably meet some people if you're, you know, if you're connected or if you're in, into that world. And I think that's really what low end was about. And, you know, they fostered that community. And at the same time, because of timings and things like that, they were also there to give a stage to this new generation, which, you know, most people probably know through somebody like Flying Lotus or like say Toki Monster, I think is another name, um, you know, that people might know and, and gave them a stage to come and do things that, they weren't doing anywhere else and that's really what low end was about and it was really important and you know and i personally i think it's good that it ended i think i think it should have mm. probably ended a little before it ended and i mean i've told care of that before like you know but i understand why it lasted the way it, as long as it did but i think a lot of times with these kind of club nights it's very hard to sort of there's a moment right and there's always mm. a moment when that moment ends and you're just sort mm. of like you're either like running on the fumes of it but yeah. you're it's you know it's never yeah. you're never going to recapture it and i think every significant club night around the world 
you can Same look thing. at it like that. Same thing, you know. Yeah. It's like there's that moment and it's great, but like you have to know. And there are other club nights that were connected to low end all around the world, and some of those made that choice of being like, we're done. Yeah. They they ran less they ran for much less time because I think they were much even much more cognizant of that also like just they just couldn't keep on running. Mm. Laurent, you um, you mentioned a little bit earlier about growing up in France, and I just want to touch a little bit on your perspective. I mean, in the book, you talk a little bit about French hip-hop mixtapes and, uh, you know, a little bit about that chronology. Um, can you just give but, us an idea, as someone who grew up in France, um, how hip-hop invaded fan France, how it was received, and perhaps how it resonates these days? Yeah. Um, I mean, my experience, you know, is as... I was born in 79. I, I think I talk about this in the book, but I, you know, there's uh, the classical thing of like the kind of the hip hop inception story. Yeah. I mean, you guys have interviewed people, so you know, you know how that goes. You, yeah. you interview yeah. an artist or a DJ or a producer. It's like, I remember the first time I heard rap. And it, <laughs> was, this, yeah. it was this exact moment. And it's like, and which I'm not saying that to make fun of people because that's great. But like, I don't, I don't have one. <laughs> I don't, I don't have don't. one, right? Like I just one day there wasn't hip hop and then one day there was hip hop. That's what I remember in my head. Okay. It's like one day I was listening to rap and I don't know. There wasn't like, oh, I found this city. It was just, and I think that's partly because, and this was like early nineties and it's because by then, so like rap, for those who don't know, France was the second market for rap after the US for I think most of the eighties and nineties. I think mm. Germany overtook it by the end of the 90s. But basically, France was mm. one of the first countries in which hip-hop really arrived. And that's partly because, again, for the history nerds, you might know this, but for those who don't, there's a really interesting story about French radio entrepreneurs in New York at the time who basically brought a lot of the Zulu mm. collectives around Africa, Bambada and people like that, to France for a tour. Uh, I don't remember the details exactly right now, but it's the guy who was involved with Celluloid Records um, and there's a radio station. Um, I forget exactly which one it is. And so, and that's also part of how Change the Beat, that record came about. It was, Change the Beat was actually funded through that program. Um, it's all kind of like linked together. So that's France, like France got rap, like, and hip hop culture really early on. So throughout the eighties, it was like a thing, it was on TV. But I, don't, I wouldn't say that the music was like everywhere because I don't so much remember it. But I remember seeing like hip hop culture like around when I grew up. And then by the early 90s, that I think had laid the ground for a lot of people to take the music seriously. And so, yeah, like I started really getting into rap by the early 90s. And by then there was already like a, a French rap scene. Like I'm from the south of France and... Um, so like Marseille is the main city in the south. Paris is the main city in the north. It's kind of like the, the axis of like uh, a lot of kind of cultural stuff in France. And it was the same for rap. It was like Marseille and Paris with like LA and New York, I guess you could say, okay. of like French okay. rap. Uh, Marseille is very independent and very sort of like fuck the rest of the country. Um, and um, they had this rap group called I Am. They were the first ones that I really got into. Um, and then, you know, just from there, like tumbled into, into the music. I was lucky. I had an English teacher who, who was into rap and he, he actually gave me like, 
he gave me the Diggable Planets album and like The Roots' first album, which was crazy. This is like 93, yeah. 94. So, you know, I'm like a French kid. Like, I don't really know what's going on, but like, I'm like listening to these records and then, you know, got the Wu-Tang album. So I, I had a very kind of like similar, I guess, like experience to people in the States in that the records that made a big impact in the States made a big impact in Europe and in France, but also then, and this is what I talk about in the book, it was the mixtapes and the mixtapes right. were really this kind of beautiful mix of like the hot records of the moment, which were all like American and then like French dudes just freestyling over beats. Mm. And that was really like, that was my shit for like the longest time. Cause, cause it was like, there was that sort of like, kind of like the, the Tony touch mixtapes, all the yeah. mixtapes that yeah. were really dope at the time. It's like, there was the DJ element where you were like, the selection was dope. There was cool little tricks. It like the design was cool. And then there was, in our case, there was like all this amazing like French rap. Um, and as, as kind of they went on, these mixtapes became kind of even more elaborate where like there would be like these whole like scenarios played out that they would act out in the studio. Like it was hilarious. And that's Cut Killer, by the way. So the guy who put this mixtape together was mm. Cut Killer, who people might know from La Haine, the movie. He's the DJ who performs the kind of like fuck the police routine um, in that movie. That's so Cut great. Killer. Yeah. Mm. Um, Laurent, you have moments where the book seems kind of like pure reportage where you're just trying to get information and connect the dots and then some really beautifully mm -hmm. written passages. And I think one of your your best written passages is kind of about those B-sides and how you, you talked about in especially electronic music, how the B-side was the place for experimentation and where um, it, the kind of the, the heads essentially would, would kind of gravitate towards the B-side. And right. I've always felt like one of those kind of people. And so I wanted to give you a little time as we're um, kind of running to the end of the interview. Unfortunately, I feel like we could talk about this for like three more hours, but um, you structured your book like a mixtape and there are songs at the heading of every single section. And can you talk okay. about how you arrived at that format and how you went about choosing the songs and just kind of like how, how you kind of came upon that and why it was important to you to include? Sure. Thank you. I mean, it's really kind of you to say that it makes, it, it means a lot. Um, yeah. So the book is formatted. So the book format is, uh, I'll try and make it quick. Originally, my idea was for the book itself to be a B-tape. So the first version, the pitch that I actually like put out, um, the pitch that I sent to publishers and, and when I started writing was, the book was a B-tape and that meant that tracks were chapters. Uh, sorry, chapters were tracks and then I had shorter chapters which were interludes and those mm. interludes would basically be like themes that ran throughout the book, things like beat tapes and break beats and things like that. Uh, I wrote about a third of the book like that and then it kind of didn't work out and I scrapped it and I decided to make every chapter a beat tape. Mm. So the book is basically, the idea is that every chapter is like a beat tape. Uh, there's an intro and an outro and that's it. Everything else is, is intended as like a beat tape. And the idea for that is twofold. One is uh, it made it easier for me mentally to be able to like go through all this shit that I had. I worked on this book for like close to 10 years. I had way too much research. I had way too many interviews. I wait. There's so much stuff that I didn't even get to. And so I was like doing it like that meant that I could, give myself an excuse to just jump around like 
quite frenetically at times. Um, and so to do that, the idea was the subsections. So, you know, sometimes in a chapter, you might have like subheadings or whatever. Um, and I decided that the subheadings would be track titles and that they would also include the producer credit. And the idea for that was also to be able to, to mention things and tracks that I wouldn't necessarily talk about, mm. to have them be there, to also then give the reader a chance to say, hey, I kind of curious about this and here's, there are tracks in every chapter that you can just look up and listen to for yourself and make your own sort of like playlist. So that was kind of really it. It was really sort of like uh, an excuse to write in a way that I was more comfortable with Mm -hmm. uh, as well as a way to just make more space. And in terms of how I chose the tracks and all that, it was, to be honest with you, like I probably, I would say like half of them when I'd start a new section of a chapter, I would know what the track title should be and I would put it in there and then it generally stuck. And half of them, I didn't put anything. I put TK and then when I started editing, I went back. Or when I started, continued to write the chapter, I would basically like be like, oh, that's the track that will make sense for that section. So that's kind of how I did it. That's so dope. Giving us a writing and a listening experience. Uh, Laurent, we want to thank you for coming on the program, man. Uh, Bedroom Beats and B-Sides is coming out in early November, if our country is still standing at that time. Uh, You can get your pre-orders now through uh, Velocity Press. Um, And yeah, we just want to thank you for coming on the program, man. Thank you guys for having me. It means a lot. I appreciate it. Dad Bod Rap Pod, that was our conversation with Laurent Fantoni. Want to thank him for coming on the program. Also want to remind you, Dad Bod Rap Pod, we are out here. You can chat with us on Twitter at Dad Bod Rap Pod. You can check us out on Instagram at Dad Bod Rap Pod every Friday, 5.30 Pacific Standard Time. Two of the three of us will be on Instagram Live, kind of shooting the shit giving you the weekend wrap and what's going on in the world. It's a fun space. Come vibe with us there. Um, once again, Dad Bod Rap Pod. Dad Bod Rap Pod is a production of Stony Island Audio. Shout out to Stony Island, Open Mic, um, and all the great podcasts on this network. And like, rate, and subscribe to the show. means a lot. We're still broke. Don't get it twisted. You still haven't heard. Uh, too many ads on this program yet. So uh, you spreading this program via word of mouth and such means a whole lot. And uh, yeah, we thank everybody for rocking with us through 143 episodes. We will be back next week, Thirsty Thursday, Dad Bod Rap Pod. Stony Island Audio.